You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. Good morning, everyone. Everyone's uh, very punctual this morning, which is wonderful. And uh, I welcome you all to the Unitarian Church service this morning. We meet in a church that's been going since 1854 in South Australia. And of course, everyone is welcome, regardless of ethnicity, background, sexuality, whatever. We meet on the traditional lands of the Ghana people. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Notices. The vision subcommittee's meeting after this meeting to help, among other things, plan a session on brainstorming the future of the church, etc. How we do things, mainly for the younger people of the congregation, many of whom are not here, but that's a good question. Why are they not here? Everyone's welcome to attend, but as I say, the focus will be on those who are of younger generations. People are probably familiar with the events during the week. Worth checking out Moving Meditation. That resumes on 6th of February. And I'm also proposing a short course on meditation. Three sessions, the first Wednesday of each month, February, March, April which turns out to be the 1st of February and March. So that's something to look out for in future notices if you're interested. On Wednesday evening, there's an interfaith event. Um, I've been to a few of these. Erica has been to a few of these. This month, it's on at the Pilgrim Church in Adelaide, 5.45 till about 8 p.m. And uh, the speaker will be Alan Edwards, who's a Ghana cultural educator, and Peter Muller. There's a meal provided for a small uh, cash donation, uh, asking 10 or $15, so it's no barrier to going along for most people. And uh, I can say that it's a wonderful group of people and uh, well worthwhile. So you can ask perhaps Erica or myself or check out those notice sheets for details afterwards if you like. So we light this chalice this morning. It has been... A symbol through history of freedom and liberty. Not just our own individual freedom and liberty, but we are committed to the freedom and liberty of people around the world. And sometimes where we can't act tangibly to free others, we can at least commit ourselves to understanding their plight. We move now to uh, lighting Candles of joys and concerns. Now light the first candle. Uh, let's just pause for a moment and contemplate what we've heard from people. 
Our joys and concerns are a microcosm of the thoughts and feelings in the world. So much to be grateful for in terms of the care we receive and the joys of nature, but also concerns about health, the nature of our human bodies and the way it goes as we get on. We face these problems. For, the, for those of you who will, please join me in praying for the healing of those who are afflicted with these illnesses and we hope for a full recovery in every aspect of life and health for those who have experienced problems. Well, now I do have a story for all ages. I can't see any young people in the audience. I beg your pardon, I meant under 20s. Oh, Sandy, really? So I'll, I'll tell you the story. I was travelling in a bus with about 20 Australians through the West Bank, the occupied territories uh, of Palestine. And we'd been out um, all day and a number of us started to ask the question, mm, is there a toilet stop possible? Now we're talking about very, very poor society and we don't have the luxury like we have in Adelaide. You can maybe stop off in the parklands, go to a public toilet, one of those exalus. There aren't even pubs necessarily where you can go around the corner and there's a toilet that you can sneak into without buying a beer. Um, there's really nothing like that. So the tour guide we had, Palestinian fellow, said, look, we'll, we'll just stop at one of these farms. And we pulled up outside a fairly large farmhouse. He went in to negotiate. And, of course, the, the woman of the house said, yes, you're very welcome, come on in. So about a dozen of us trooped in and to, to one by one go to the toilet. And as we assembled in her lounge room, uh, of course she said, sit down. She brought out bottles of water. She brought out uh, the flat bread with the herbs, dukkah, uh, or dukkah, you, you might have uh, seen it in the supermarkets, and labni, which is the uh, kind of uh, savoury yoghurt. Um, so we were able to enjoy a snack and, and a drink while one by one we went in. And she also had the opportunity to tell us her story. In fact, we were asking about her circumstances. And she explained that they were in hard times because her husband, a few years prior, had been arrested during a demonstration and was in uh, an Israeli prison. And without him to uh, go out and work for other people and get a bit of money, um, she could sell a few of the olives uh, that were in the orchard on the land, but it was barely enough to survive. And she had children to care for as well. And she explained that she had come from a reasonably well-off uh, family, and one of the things that struck her was the fact that before she was married, she was able to go to the market and buy bread whenever she wanted to. She was in a situation where she couldn't afford to go to the market and buy bread. So she would buy a little bit of flour and salt. She had milk from a cow or a goat, 
and she made her own bread. So that's what we were enjoying on the spot. Anyway, we all finished and, of course, expressed our gratitude. We talked to the guide about offering some money to her and he said, no, look, that really would be an insult. Uh, she, she's brought you in as a guest. So, all right. We got back on the bus and uh, just as we were about to shut the bus door, the woman had said goodbye at the door of the house, but now she was running towards the bus with a bag in her hand. And we thought, oh, um, somebody's left behind their handbag or their phone or something. And she put the bag into one of the open bus windows and waved us goodbye and, and thanked us. It was a bag of oranges from an orange tree. So not only was she so generous to invite us into her home and provide us with water and food, but she felt she had to give us a parting gift as well. And we had offered nothing but our understanding and our love. Sometimes that's all you can do. Love will So the reflections I offer this morning are a little bit different to what I would usually do. I try, at least, to be a bit more philosophical, usually. This is really a, a sequel, in a way, to Iran's presentation a couple of weeks ago. His presentation inspired me to offer some thoughts about my trip to Palestine, Israel, in 2006. The starting point, I think, is to go back to the Unitarian principles, and I would invite all of us to say this together. It's directly from the Unitarian principles. If you wish, say along with me. We believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. We seek justice equity and compassion in human relations. We pray for a world community with peace, liberty and justice for all. Amen. So, Impressions of Palestine-Israel 2006. The trip was organised by Australian Friends of Palestine. That was a, uh, it's a local Adelaide group. Iran referred to it uh, when he gave his talk a couple of weeks ago. I'm a life member and I also helped set up the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, which is a national group advocating for Palestinian rights. They do conduct study tours. There's one coming up later this year. They generally always book out, but if people do want a safe, informative trip to the area, it is possible. We went through, in 2006, a Christian travel agency in Palestine. But first, uh, a bit of history. From the map there, you can see the, the green and yellowish bits. 
Together, those areas make up what was called the British Mandate. You remember World War I, the Turkish or the Ottoman Empire was on the side of the Germans, they lost, and so their empire was dismembered. And the British kept a colony, um, politely called a mandate, because the port of Haifa in the north of the country was important for their control of the eastern Mediterranean. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Jewish population in the region was a, a few percent, a mixture of Christian, Muslim, Jewish and a few other diverse faiths such as Baha'i and Druze, which was arguably an offshoot of Islam, but that's, uh, that's another question. The Jewish population increased over the years and in 1922 was about 11%. The British had promised the Arabs and also Jewish leaders that they would have this area under their control, ultimately, and after the war it was kept as a British colony, but Jewish immigration was strongly encouraged. And so by the, the time of the end of the Second World War, talking about the mid-1940s, the Jewish population got up to about a third of the area. However, because of that that's very substantial immigration from Europe and Russia particularly, and had changed the complexion of the society. So there was a lot of tension, just as immigration causes some tension in Australia for the locals. It was an issue in the 1920s and 1930s. Because of that tension, by 1947, the UN was engaged to propose a partition plan. And so the green area was proposed for the Arab population and the yellowish colour was proposed for the Jewish population, so that it was meant to be uh, winners on both sides. Uh, however, uh, neither side was particularly happy, and on the Jewish side it was seen as an opportunity to initiate military conflict and actually take control of the land. So a nascent Jewish military force fought with the armies of surrounding Arab nations, and they won, and that was for the Israelis the War of Independence and for the Palestinians, the Nakba, which is Arabic for catastrophe. So the situation after the war was uh, pretty well this. So the Jordanians had retained what is called the West Bank, which is that, that large green kidney shape, and that small strip on the left of the screen, the Gaza Strip, obviously the city of Gaza and surrounding areas, that was retained by the Egyptian forces. So that was essentially the armistice line. And so when we talk about the West Bank, it is literally on the west bank of the Jordan River, which is sort of the edge of the silhouette there that you can see. And the territories remained under, let's say, non-Israeli control up until 1967. There was another war, and uh, Israel occupied those remaining areas. Moving forward... Gaza retained its independence, but the West Bank was under Jewish military occupation. The uh, negotiations in the 90s and, and so on led to the establishment of a local Palestinian authority. So it was able to administer a lot of civil law among Palestinians within the West Bank, but it ha didn't have power, for example, to raise an army. It uh, didn't have control over customs, that is, its borders. So there were certainly limitations on its power and military occupation continued through that time. 
There was an offer of uh, a Palestinian state from the Israeli leader Barak in about 2000, and you can see it rather eats into that uh, West Bank component, and that was rejected. Subsequently, the Israeli military and political leader Sharon suggested a further diminished West Bank Palestinian state uh, that was also rejected by the Palestinians. However, this is the plan that essentially has gradually been put into place regardless. So, yes, the area available to Palestinians has certainly been shrinking. So, looking uh, more closely at the West Bank, and we're, we're talking about an area that's, that would equate locally roughly between McLaren Vale and the Clare Valley, and about 3 million people live there. So the yellow dots, the Palestinian populated areas, there are over 400,000 Jewish people in settlements. Essentially, they're colonies. Settlement can sometimes give the idea it's like a little shack, but some of these are multi-storey apartment buildings and entire uh, villages. One of the characteristics of the West Bank is that there are literally hundreds of military checkpoints. At one time up to 600, but now somewhere between 400 and 500. And I'll show you some photos of these later on. But they limit daily movement for Palestinians, whether it's going to school or hospitals or work, visiting family or whatever. Just something that has to be negotiated each and every day if they're travelling. The separation wall, I suppose that is... You might think that's a pejorative term, although it literally is there to separate the two populations. Starting off in the northwest, then gradually surrounding that West Bank Territory, and this green area is still being completed. But you'll see that when it is completed, it fulfills that plan of Sharon back in 2003 to segment the West Bank into different areas. And so just as a comparison, the West Bank's about that big. When we travelled there, we saw a lot of churches, so I'll just you know, quickly go through some of the church photographs, because they're really very beautiful churches. A lot of international money has gone into it. Uh, the history was that um, within a couple of centuries after Jesus' living, there was interest in picking out sites for pilgrimage, and indeed the emperor's wife came along a few hundred years after Jesus and said, I want to know where the places are and where the local clergy pointed them out, there were churches sprung up. So a church to celebrate Mary getting the news about her impending birth. There's a, a grotto underneath. It's very much a stony country, despite there are some lush areas, but there are many, many caves throughout the whole area and uh, some beautiful areas like this where they've made them into places of worship. The Church of the Nativity, of course, celebrating the birth. A huge structure now over what was allegedly a little inn. And underneath all of this elaboration, of course, icons, this is the uh, reputed to be the actual birthplace under there, so not quite the little manger in the straw that people have sung about. It's, it's quite elaborate now. There's the story there. I would like to point out that when we talk about Christian, there are many different denominations represented in Jerusalem. So Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, various other Eastern Orthodox denominations, as well as Catholic and Protestant, with which you'd be more familiar. Uh, jumping over to the Lake of Galilee, of course, it features in Bible stories, Jesus going out on the boat, a fishing boat and so on. And they're still fishing, uh, in many cases, still in the same sort of basic fishing craft today. 
the town of Nazareth is to the north of that lake. And um, a beautiful uh, church by an Italian designer, the Church of Beatitudes, lots of marble. I just particularly like the wonderful mosaic work. And this one I took a photo of, Justitia, Latin for justice. The ascension, that is Jesus bodily going up to heaven, uh, is also celebrated with the church. Now, this church is something a bit special. In the town of Baram, the inhabitants in 1947-48 fled. They had heard of massacres in nearby towns, and they heard that the Jewish military forces were approaching. So they thought the best option was to leave. I thought, after all of this has settled down, we'll come back. So that's what they sought to do, but the military excluded them and said, no, you're not coming back. They went to the Supreme Court in this new nation of Israel, and the Supreme Court said, well, actually, you do have property rights there. You can come back. So the military thought, well, all right, we see what the court's done. So they uh, sent in the bombers and eradicated all of the housing. The one building they left was the church. And so to this day, the residents and and descendants of Baram go back and and visit that church. It's still subject to a military exclusion. Now, an interlude to to break up this presentation. (laughs) I've caught them a bit unawares. Just while you're getting ready, I'll just say something about the population of the area. So if you take Israel the state, the West Bank area that's under Palestinian administration and Israeli military occupation, and the Gaza Strip, which is... Uh, unoccupied except for local uh, Palestinian government. You've got nearly 7 million Palestinians, mostly Muslim but with some Christian and and other, Uh, and you've got a bit over 7 million Jewish. So it's, it's pretty close to a balance. And one of the things that is said about Israel is that it may desire to be democratic It may desire to be from Jordan to the sea. It may desire to be a Jewish nationalistic state. But it can only be two out of three. So it could be democratic and Jewish if you cut out enough Palestinian areas to concentrate the Jewish population. It could be Jewish and from Jordan to the sea if you have uh, military control, and it's largely the current situation, or it could be from Jordan to the sea and democratic, in which case the Palestinians would have equal civil rights and voting rights. And that's uh, what has been termed the one-state solution. But that seems a distant dream. Anyway, time for our musicians. Thank you. So I continue the, the tour with a few of the mosques that we visited, one in Tiberias. That was abandoned because it was depopulated of Arabs uh, at the time of the war and hasn't been in use. The Hebron Mosque is quite special. It's rather unique because it is a focal point for Christian, Jewish and Muslim belief. 
being the place where Abraham was said to have born, uh, the, the patriarch in the Bible. And it is said that uh, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, his son Isaac, daughter-in-law Rebecca, are buried there. It's also unique because after a long history, there is a synagogue as part of the adjoining building to the mosque. It had been a Jewish site of worship thousands of years ago. With the Crusades, a church was established on the site. With the Muslims fighting back the Crusaders, a mosque was established on the site. And uh, after the 47-48 uh, war, it became a mosque and synagogue. So it rather depends on who was the last victorious army with, with a lot of these sites around the Middle East. But very beautiful architecture, quite exquisite. On the right of the screen there, the Mithrab has a niche in the wall pointing towards Mecca or praying towards Mecca, but also it's where the Imam gives the address from, the pulpit, if you like. And uh, just a bit more of the space there. Um, interestingly, they've kept an old Greek inscription, probably from the time that it was a Christian church around a thousand years ago. Although the remains of this notable family are said to be in the caves underneath the site, there are cenotaphs or, if you like, symbolic tombs of members of the family within the mosque itself. This is what they tend to do in various of the mosques and sites around the place. It's, I don't know, maybe three or four metres high and uh, almost as long in a sort of a, a curved shape. It's the common way of doing it. And also this almost like a little house, which is symbolic of, of a tomb. Jumping forward to the Jerusalem area, I've uh, entitled this one the Mount of Olives, but what we're looking at actually is Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So there's a valley in between and then part of the old walls of the city and then Jerusalem itself, and very integral to the biblical story about Jesus spending a night on the Mount of Olives, contemplating his future just before crucifixion. Another shot showing the dome on the rock uh, with its gold-plated top, and the Valley of Gethsemane, again uh, mentioned in the Christian Bible, still being used as a cemetery. Of course, another church, Church of the Agony, again representing what Jesus was contemplating that night before the crucifixion. The Dome of the Rock is significant because it's said to be where Abraham was ordered by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, so that the raw rock is still there. But it's also extremely important to Muslim believers because it is said to be where Muhammad ascended to heaven from. And such was the significance of Jerusalem as Muhammad was starting his teaching that initially Muslims prayed toward Jerusalem. And it was during Muhammad's lifetime he said, no, actually, we should pray towards Mecca, which was one of the homes of Muhammad. So people have heard of the Wailing Wall. So this is one of the walls surrounding the, the Temple Mount, as they call it, the raised area where you have not only the Dome of the Rock, but also the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the most significant mosques probably in the Muslim world. And the, the, the grey-topped one is the, the mosque itself. Always a site of conflict when things erupt between the local Palestinian and um, Israeli forces. So here's a broader shot. Down the bottom you can see the rigorous security entrance area 
So more elaborate than what you would have in Adelaide Airport or something like that. But um, searching all of the bags, etc., etc., obviously a very sensitive site. And on the left, you can see the little crowds gathering in a little uh, praying area, uh, observation area next to the Wailing Wall. And uh, men's area, there's a separate women's area, but people will pray there, contemplate scripture, and stick little prayer notes in the stone wall as well. This area used to be Palestinian homes, but after the 48 war, they were demolished and it's become the plaza that it is now. Just a few more close-up shots of the Dome of the Rock. Beautiful calligraphy, that wonderful Islamic-style decoration around the outside. And inside it looks like a mosque, and you see the actual rock is still raw in the centre of it, where, as I say, Abraham was said to have been poised to sacrifice his son in a human sacrifice to God. And... I like the photograph because I've got that ghostly figure which can represent any holy figure you, you can imagine. Mm. So that's some of that calligraphy close-up. Around the old city of Jerusalem, obviously there's a strong Christian focus as well, and they have set up little posts with carvings and statues and so forth representing the Stations of the Cross. Those from a Christian heritage be very familiar with that. Different stages on the journey of Jesus towards the crucifixion. You can even hire a cross to repeat the performance yourself, preferably without the culmination. Um, Of course, uh, where the grave is, it's not just a little grave anymore. It's a magnificent, not just a church, a series of churches uh, on the spot because each denomination wants its own church on that spot. So underneath all this grandeur and lights and icons, there's a little spot where the the cross was meant to be fixed in the ground. There is a spot which is called Joseph's Tomb for Jesus, and you know we don't really know who was buried there, but it is typical of the burial of the time. So at least for sufficiently well-to-do people, and if you remember the story, Jesus was said to have been to have his body collected by Joseph of Arimathea, who was presumably a well-off person. Joseph of Arimathea would have buried people in places like this. So you can walk in, it's only about maybe five foot, sorry, old language, but 1.67 metres tall, and so you crouch in. But when you go in, there are ledges, stone ledges, and in the old days, bodies, the traditional burial sheet or shroud, would be carried in and left on the ledge. If you've been to the catacombs near Rome, similar sort of idea, bodies are laid out on the ledges. So quite eerie, whether it was the, the final resting place or, or not, who knows. I just want to make a brief mention that uh, Israel's home to other religions as well. Because the prophet of the Baha'is was imprisoned in Haifa, They've selected it as, although they originated in Persia, now Iran, they're seen as uh, anathema to the Muslim rulers there. They ended up setting up their international headquarters in Haifa, that port in the north of Israel, with beautiful, beautiful gardens as well as a lovely building. That's a better shot. And they are, of course, an international Organization and the Baha'i people are quite involved in the interfaith uh, activity in Adelaide as well. One of the shrines of the Druze people 
In this case, Nabi just means saint. So Nabi Shuaib is Jethro, who was featured in the story of Moses after Moses came out of Egypt. I won't go into the whole story. But just to indicate that there are some other religions in the area. Just something about the wall that I've mentioned. It is actually hard to imagine eight-metre-high concrete walls, especially more than 750 kilometres in length. But it's worth stressing because I have heard it um, from the propaganda on the other side called a security fence or something like that. It is far more than that. So there's an example. That's me uh, standing there. So you can see that the wall is a lot taller than this person. Various points along the way, sniper towers or watchtowers, I guess you could call them. One little story. While we were on the bus, the man standing up was our Palestinian guide. And the guy uh, looks like he's on a radio. He's a young Israeli soldier. There's conscription over there. So many of the people at the checkpoints are 18 or 19 or 20 years old. So he came on board with his gun, checked passports. This is at the Tulkaram uh, checkpoint, going back from West Bank into Israel. And he said, right, you, the Palestinian guide, you walk through the security checkpoint, uh, otherwise the bus can go through. And being Australians and fairly uh, conscious of racism, etc., we said, no, we'll go with him. So the driver of the bus drove around and we all climbed out with the Palestinian guide in solidarity and went through and had the guns pointed at us and searched bags and shouting at us and so forth in Hebrew, which wasn't very helpful to most of us. And through we went got back on the bus. So just one little story of a checkpoint. There's certainly a lot of danger, fear and humiliation at the checkpoints, but it's pretty safe if you don't look Palestinian. Checkpoints, when I say checkpoints, what is that? Sometimes they look like a cattle shed like that. Sometimes they're just a couple of those cement blocks on the road, maybe a bit of barbed wire, uh, one or two soldiers, and they can be very elaborate. One of the key things is that they can be shut at any time. You might plan to travel to visit your doctor or to visit your relative. Uh, you have to go through a checkpoint and you might be waved through, no problem. Or you might be stopped for five hours because that particular day they're searching everyone, looking at ID, they're searching vehicles, etc. You just don't know what's going to happen each day. One of the more elaborate checkpoints, also one of the more commonly used, is the one into Bethlehem. Bethlehem's only just outside Jerusalem, so there's a lot of tourism, uh, understandably, and Bethlehem's more of a Palestinian town. What I love about this is the Ministry of Tourism sign, Peace be with you. Appreciated that. Look, just some thoughts from what I experienced talking to Israelis there, Jewish Israelis in particular, and I've got a spectrum of responses. So there were some we talked to, particularly the so-called settlers, and they actually do sincerely believe they're reclaiming a God-given land. No doubt about it. And they rely on scripture. So just refer to a couple of passages out of Exodus I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. So that's not just the West Bank, but that's going into Jordan and Iraq as well. But the real uh, punchline actually comes a little bit earlier in Exodus. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. 
So when you've got a sort of a divine promise like that, you can understand that people who unquestioning adherence to Jewish scripture have a justification for moving into uh, what would otherwise be Palestinian land. So the second point I've got there, many people in Israel, and I've talked to certainly some of them, who feel, look, historically we needed a homeland. There was a lot of persecution, a lot of uh, racism in Europe against Jewish people. We needed a nation somewhere. And as long as there's a military threat outside us or from from Palestinians or others, we need to have that military occupation. And then there are those who are compassionate toward Palestinians, sympathetic, but it's actually very difficult to know what to do. When you can't drive down the road and visit the local Palestinian village easily, I mean, you might have to go through a couple of checkpoints, you might, have, you might be interrogated, you might be searched, uh, and so on. You know, you can be sympathetic from a distance, but it's not easy to be practically involved. That is, I'm saying, a common thought. But, in fact, I've got the, the fourth category there of peace activists. So people, regardless of those difficulties, are getting involved They're standing by when Palestinian houses are demolished in East Jerusalem. They're going to border checkpoints just as monitors, just to record, maybe film what's happening if they can, and take that back to to human rights agencies. On the other side, Palestinians I spoke to, a lot talked about the humiliation of checkpoints and not being able to fight back, feeling of helplessness. At the same time, an extraordinary sense of hope among ordinary folk. It was the leaders of the Palestinians, when you spoke to them, that said it's absolutely hopeless. (laughs) There's no way out. But when you speak to the common people, they felt they had to live with hope, and hope eternal. Uh, And the other distinguishing feature, as I alluded to earlier, the incredible hospitality of the people, uh, despite poverty. Uh, A bit of graffiti there. Now, that's probably 2,000 years old, uh, that one. Uh, (laughs) Romans go home. And finish off with uh, a T-shirt. America, don't worry, Israel is behind you. So it's uh, very reassuring for those in Washington. Let's just have a think about that for a moment. And please reflect on this with me, or pray if you will. As we receive information about others, whether it be Palestinians Uh, First Nations people in Australia or others in our community, let us be very careful and mindful as we assess the information we receive in our pursuit of truth so that we might engage our most compassionate response to those in need of care. May it be so. We hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website 
at unitarianSA.org.au.